we are continuing our, our, our uh, study through the Old Testament where we've begun in the patriarchs, and we've been here for a few weeks now uh, going through the patriarchs. Tonight, we're going to close with the, the sacrifice of Isaac or the binding of Isaac, and so that will partially bring a close to the Abraham story, and we'll much speedier move, kind of move through Genesis until we get to Moses, and we'll spend a lot more time on Moses. Um, I should tell you, next week we will not meet. I will be out of town next week. So um, next week we will not meet. Uh, Andrea and I will be, if, if everybody stays healthy, okay, it's a knock on wood situation at this point. Lord, please keep everybody healthy. But if so, we will be on our way to Florida at that, <laughs> at that time next week. So um, I'm not teleconferencing in, okay? So we're, we're, we won't be meeting next week. But um, we've been going through... And we're getting close to the end of the Abraham story, and we're going to see some, how, how some of this wraps up uh, tonight. And we won't totally leave Abraham. We'll, we'll kind of close him out a little bit more in a couple weeks and, and move through uh, Genesis and get to, get to Moses and Exodus. And uh, to look at some, really what we've been doing is just kind of trying to see not only the theological things, that uh, openings that are being made, uh, that... The rest of the Bible will begin tying together and helping us see how that whole story arc really uh, completes by the end of the, the Bible, especially by the end of the Old Testament. Um, but then also trying to look at the historical perspective, what's going on in the land at the time? How do we understand this uh, in, light of, in light of history, uh, lay out for us the geography that they're involved in, that the characters in the Old Testament are involved in? why certain things make sense and what's going on at the time. And so trying to connect some history as well as the theology of the Old Testament to try to basically really remove some of the fear that we naturally have when we read the Old Testament. Now, what we've seen so far is that God has made some promises to Abraham and he's told him that he's going to make him the father of a great nation and that he's going to do bless him, and he's going to bless those who bless him. He's going to curse those who curse him. And at the time, Abram is without a child, and he's very old, and time is really running out for him. And as far as he's concerned, time has run out. And every time it seems that we've seen God makes a promise to Abram, then the promise is tested. Do you believe in the promise? And it seems as though Abram's response is really no that he kind of believes in God when he's there in front of him and he's telling him and he, he does believe. And we see that Abraham believes God and it's credited to him as righteousness. So there is a measure of belief. But then as soon as it's tested and the rubber actually meets the road, it seems like Abraham just can't get up the gumption to follow through on what he believes. I think we've probably all been there, haven't we? We know what God tells us is right. And then we're convinced of it. And we meet on Sunday, we meet on Wednesday, and we leave going, yes, I believe in the promises of God. I know that these things are true. And then when the rubber actually meets the road, maybe that very next hour or that next day or during that week, we find it incredibly a lot, a lot more difficult. I mean, you can imagine someone in, in a job setting who has the decision to make at that time whether or not to, you know, tell the truth and knowing that it could risk their termination or tell a very small and very simple lie and keep their job. And they're faced with this dilemma and what a dilemma that is, right? And it's right there that you have to ask yourself, do I really believe in the promises of God, that he's going to take care of me, that he's going to protect me, that even if I lose my job at this moment, that he's going to continue to provide for, for me and my family. I mean, these kind of situations, they may not be that dire. We may not get in those kinds of situations, but we have those kinds of things pop up all the time. And it comes to us just like it came to Abraham. And what encourages me about the Abraham story is that as we continue to see Abraham tested with these promises, he fails. And yet, what do we see? God continues to come back to him and say and remind him, remember, this is the promise. And trust me. So there's that just question, do you, do you trust me? And I know that I'm, I'm pretty sure we're reading this right. And we should be seeing that in the text because of how the binding of Isaac actually goes. 
And what the narrator tells us is going to happen in the binding of Isaac. What, what, the narrator gives us a clue in the binding of Isaac what God is actually doing here. He just, he just tells us. Here, God's just going to do it one more time. And we see Abraham with a totally different response than we've seen before. And so we know that we're looking at that right, that he's tested and he fails. And then God comes back to him and reminds him of the promise. And so we've also seen that, that, um, that Abraham has tried to create an heir for himself. I'm going to make you father of a great nation. And he says, well, I don't have a child, so let me help you out. I'm going to kind of do this myself. And so we see uh, he takes Eleazar of Damascus, his servant, and makes him the heir of his household. No, Abraham, that's not going to be right. That's not going to be your heir. Uh, uh, someone from your very own loins is going to be your heir. I got it. A much younger woman. That's what we need. And so... He, with his, with, his, with his servant, Hagar, and they have a child. No, Abram, that's not going to be. And th- there is some question, some people think, that when a- Abram is called from, uh, from Ur of the Chaldeans, he goes to bury his father in Haran, and it, his father dies. And then who does he take with him? He doesn't really leave all of his family like we initially think he's going to do. He actually takes Lot with him. And there's some people that think that Lot is actually his first attempt at trying to garner an heir for himself, though he hasn't totally received the promise yet. So he, he's, he's got you know, a lot by his side. I don't know if, how true that is, but um, it, it seems to fit with what we know of Abram so far. You know, he, he's got, so he's, he's trying to make him, himself an heir, and, and that doesn't quite work. But then there's other things, too. Now, Abram is told, I'm going to make you a father of a great nation. He doesn't have a kid, but then whenever he is confronted with death, he cheats his way out of it. Right, uh, he he encounters Pharaoh and he tells Sarah, "Hey, look, when we go into this place, if they see me with you, you're a good-looking woman, and if they see me with you, they're gonna kill me. So just tell them you're my brother, and or you're 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 my sister, and and everything will be just fine. And well, that doesn't quite work. But what Abram doesn't think about." is that part of the promise is not just I'm going to make you a father of a great nation, but also I'll bless those who bless you and I'll curse those who curse you. And so when they come over to Abram and and he says, oh, she's my sister and oh, he's my brother. And they take Sarah into their house. They're bringing a curse on their house. And that's what happens. God comes in and curses the house of Pharaoh and Abram it doesn't either he doesn't think about it or he doesn't care. <laughs> and, but God is again, in spite of Abram's sin and rebellion is, or in you know, sin and lying, is faithful to the promise. He he curses Pharaoh, and we're going to see it happen again today. But it, it, continually we see this over and over. God is faithful to the promise. Last week we saw where the angel of the Lord, who is Christ, uh, the, the pre-incarnate Christ, the pre-incarnate Son of God, come to Abram and say, hey, this time next year, I'm going to give you a child. So now we have a date, all right, on the child being born. We know when Isaac is going to be born. And so uh, we, we've, we've now seen that. We know that that's coming. Now, uh, Abram moves into the Negev. Uh, you may have N-E-G-E-B. The B is soft, so it's Negev instead of Negev. Uh, so Abram moves into the Negev and falls, uh, fails yet again to trust in the promises of God. How? How does he do this? By attempting to pass off Sarah as his sister. Let's read that passage in Genesis 20, verses 1 to 13. Let me read that for us all so we can hear it. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev, and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham, Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a, in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman who you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech, had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not say himself to me, she's my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In this integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. 
I have taken another man's wife in the innocence of my... Anyway. Uh, then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die. You and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought, me, brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. See, I have integrity. I told the truth. Uh, and when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. This is a plan we've concocted for a long time. We've been running this scheme for a long time, Abimelech. So, um, so Abraham tries one more trick, right? And it worked the last time. And a plague came upon Pharaoh's house. So, well, why not try it again, right? It worked the last time, so he does it again. But in spite of the fact that he has been told now by the angel of the Lord in, the, in a, a previous, well, is actually the previous chapter is the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, but the chapter before that, the last time we saw Abraham, he was told by the angel of the Lord that you're going to have a child this time next year. And so, well, there you go. He comes to the first town he sees, and Abimelech is there, and he says, look, here we go. Let's run the scheme one more time. And they tell, they, they, they lie to preserve their life. And Abimelech takes Sarah into her house. And obviously it brings plagues on Abimelech or it brings a, a, a warning on Abimelech. And he gets really nervous. Now, just to give you a lay of the land of where we're at, I made the titles bigger so that you can kind of see them. Hopefully that works. Um, but you have here the, the names that are mentioned in, uh, in this text. You have Shur, which is, uh, which is down here in the bottom left. And Shur is, uh, is getting close to the, the edge of Egypt. So we're getting right in, we're kind of orient you from where you're at. If you were to zoom out a lot further, you'd be in the Sinai Peninsula, the little pizza pie that connects uh, Africa to, you know, or the northern part of Africa up to uh, the, the promised land. And so uh, Kadesh Barnea, where we're going to see prominent, a prominent feature in the Exodus wanderings when they're, when they're traveling through the wilderness. Kadesh Barnea is down here in the south. This whole region down here is called the Negev. So we're talking about a whole region of, of area down here, the Negev at the, at the southern tip, I guess, right at the Sinai Peninsula. And then you have Beersheba, which is up here. It'll be in the story. And Gerar, which we saw is Abimelech's land. Now, you notice what Gerar is getting close to. You see that? Gerar is close to, you got the big region up there. We see Philistia. Okay, you recognize Philistia? Philistia, you know? The people from Philistia. Who are they? The, Phil the Philistines, right? Okay, and uh, so you have uh, the Philistia, and then right next to Gerar, which I don't have listed there, and it's not listed in the story, but is Gaza. Uh, so you, 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 uh, those are prominent Philistine cities. Um, so, okay. Now, there's a problem, though, because uh, you know what an anachronism is? When something is anachronistic, it's, what is it, David? Out of time, Out of time. okay? Uh, so the Philistines don't show up on the scene until the 1200s B.C., okay? Get it? So here we've got, and this is one of the kind of the problems that people point to in the text and that debate about and argue about, okay? So this is an argument. Philistines don't pop up until about 1200 B.C. That's the next blank. You can see that there. And one of the, the problems is that Abimelech is identified as the king of Gerar, and he's associated 
with the area of the Philistines in the text. Okay, so uh, let's read that. If you look there in uh, the, your, pa- your passage list there, Genesis 21, uh, 32 to 34, who will read that for us? Okay, so here is a, this is how the story winds up. We'll get there in a little bit, but this is how the story ends, spoiler alert, is uh, with Abraham sojourning many days, the author says, in the land of the Philistines. Okay, now put together the pieces for me. Let's just play this out for just a second. If we've got the Philistines here on the scene at the time, what does that mean about the time this was written? If they don't show up until 1200 BC, what year are we in, by the way, with Abraham? Yeah, just before the 1900s. I think Isaac is born in 2066, if I remember right. Something like that. Okay, so if Isaac is born in 2066, we're almost a millennia before the Philistines actually show up on the scene. Okay? All right. So what does that mean about maybe the writing of the book of Genesis? What would that mean, potentially, if that was true? That's right. So that would mean, well, does the author know about the Philistines? Uh, If he does, then that means they're on the scene. So the author is writing this book sometime after the 1200s when they show up, right? That's one thing that could potentially mean. Uh, Or the author is correct. Abraham is journeying in the land of the Philistines. So it could mean that the Philistines were on the scene at the time, maybe, and we have no historical record of them showing up on the time. We don't have a historical record in that area until 1200s, around the 1200s. Okay, so it could mean that. It could also mean that Abraham is journeying in the area of a people group that were closely associated with the Philistines and that someone later on, before, or at some point in the Genesis composition, just scrubbed out the name and put in Philistines so the people in the modern audience would read it and go, oh, that, that, that's where he was. Otherwise, we wouldn't know who those people were, right? All of those options are possible, okay? All right. Now, but then we open the Bible and we start to see, ah, answers, come to, <laughs> come to the surface. So there's a number of texts outside the Bible, okay? So not in the Bible, but outside the Bible that refer to a people uh, the people of Captera. All right, let me get to the next little thing here so that you can see it. Is it up there? Okay. Uh, so uh, the people of Captera, whose origin, whose place of origin was Crete. They were a seafaring people. They came from Crete. You know where Crete is? Over by Greece. Okay, so in that direction. Um, that came from Crete, they were a seafaring people, and they, they came and settled in the land where we knew the Philistines had settled. So the land of where Gerar was, where Gaza was, that area over there on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Okay, so these are texts outside the Bible. They refer to a people group called that that were there in the time of Abraham, okay, that were settled in that region. Now, here's what the Bible does for us. We see the, the, the Bible actually refers... Do I have this blank? Did I? Yeah, I did. The Bible associates the earliest Philistines with the Kaphtorim. Okay, so other texts outside the Bible, people of Kaptera. The Bible refers to a group of people called the Kaphtorim, whose home was Kaphtor or Crete in that direction. So it links these two people together, Right? Well, now if we only had some texts that link the Kaphtarim to the Philistines. Okay, let's look at our text list here. Um, so we'll see in the Bible, let's look at Deuteronomy 2.23 as an example. As for the Avim who lived in villages as far as Gaza, the Kaphtarim who came from Kaphtor, destroyed and settled in their place. So we know that the Kaphtarim were settled in Gaza, according to the Bible. You tracking with me? Is this making, making sense so far? Okay. 
Um, and then Jeremiah 47.4, because of the day that is coming to destroy all the Philistines, to cut off from Tyre and Sidon every helper that remains. For the Lord is destroying the Philistines, the remnant of the coastland of Kaftor. Why? Well, the Bible does it. Look at that. Kind <laughs> of links them to a group of people. Um, and then Amos 9.7, are you not... Like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord, did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaftor and the Syrians from Kerr? So we don't have a Philistine culture, a proper, properly named Philistine culture until the 1200s, but we have their ancestors in that area. The Bible and outside text outside of the Bible actually link these people to the Philistines. These are the predecessors, the ancestors to the Philistines. Does that make sense? So Abram, Abraham journeys in the land of the Philistines could either be, we referred to him as the Philistines even back then, that's possible, or it could be some editor later is going, nobody knows who Kafter is. Let's <laughs> put it Philistines. Nobody knows who that group is. Philistines is who that was, right? And puts it in there and it gets in wide circulation. That's also possible. Does that make sense? Questions on that? I know that's really weird, but there's a reason why it matters. We're going to see later on that the, the, in the Exodus, they don't go by the sea, even though that would be quicker because the Philistines are out there <laughs> and the Philistines are seafaring people. See, the Jews have never been seafaring people. They weren't... A, they weren't great on the sea. Just ask Jonah. Like, the, sea, the sea was not their friend most of the time. In fact, you get a lot of stories coming out of, of Israel. We'll see throughout the, the Leviathan becomes a, a massive figure for evil. And where does Leviathan live? In the sea. In the sea is evil. It's wickedness. I feel that I was born to be a Jew, man. I was like, I feel the same way. <laughs> the water is where God buried all the nasty creatures he didn't want us to fight. Um, okay. Uh, so, uh, so anyway, we have these, uh, the Kaftarim. The so Abraham is in that area. And one of the other reasons why that matters is because you'll hear this from time to time as we deal with dating when the exodus happened. Now, I, I do realize that there's going to be a group of people in here that, that will have to deal with questions related to things like this more often than other people. I get that. Some of us are opening our Bibles and just going, hey, it says it, I believe it. And that's good. That's a good place to be. I don't mind being in that place. But there's also a group of people that you understand that are going to face, a, how do I say this, a more militant variety of unbeliever. And there's some questions that they have that are complex and that are very difficult to answer sometimes. And so I feel like the need to dive into a couple of these things every once in a while because I think it's important. But one of the main supports for the late date of the Exodus, when it comes to dating the Exodus, when did the Exodus happen? Well, uh, when it comes to support for the late date of the Exodus, which puts it somewhere around 1250, um, they look at the reference to the Philistines in the text of, Genesis, or of, of Exodus that says, well, they didn't go that way because the Philistines were in that area. They look at that text and they go, well, if the Philistines were in that area, then the, the Exodus can't have been in the 1400s. It has to have been in the 1200s. Now, that also matters because we know the building of the temple, the Bible says, was 400 and I think 30 years after the Exodus. Okay, well, if the Exodus was 200 years later, then 400 years matters. Well, we know when the building of the temple was because we know when Solomon reigned, right? You tracking with me so far? Okay, well, the Bible says Solomon built the temple. We know when Solomon reigned, but if it was 400 years after the Exodus, and the Exodus was in 1200, either Solomon didn't build the temple, or something else is an explanation. The Bible's wrong in some capacity somewhere, right? There's only certain, so many things you can move around before it doesn't make sense anymore, right? So that, that's, a, that's kind of what's at stake, and you wouldn't think that by simply just reading through it, but they're, they're, it's kind of sometimes like a stack of dominoes, you know, and you tip one over and they kind of all just start to go. Yes? Does this make sense? 
Tracking with me? Okay, questions on that? No, that was a lot to work through really fast, but... Yeah, there's, and, and I think um, one, of my, one of the professors uh, uh, that I used to have uh, used to always say, archaeology is a friend of the Bible. And so we, we get helped a lot by outside texts that are found just randomly. Um, they, there, there was one, one that I'm thinking of. They were convinced that, uh, or, and kind of some of them still are, that David was kind of a mythological creature character and, and it was just he was just fabricated in the biblical text he didn't rule a kingdom and uh certainly the people of israel were not known by david and then well lo and behold we found a stone that referred to israelites as the house of david so well darn <laughs> you know <laughs> flushed all those theories down the tube <laughs> So, um, so yeah, archaeology tends to be a friend of the Bible, and we, t- we tend to find these things. And, some, and hey, sometimes we have to go, we don't know. We trust that, again, we'll find something, maybe, or maybe we won't, and maybe we'll just kind of always be in this place of not knowing. But there's been enough already that we kind of just say, ah, we'll put a lot of stake in it and let, let something prove it wrong, <laughs> you know, is probably a better, a safer place to be. Um, okay, uh, now, if you notice, okay, so Isaac arrives onto the scene, and uh, he arrives at best probably somewhere around 2066, I think, is the best uh, approximation of his, of his birth date. And uh, Abraham and Sarah uh, fulfill all that is required of them, uh, the naming, they, they circumcise Isaac, they do all of the things that the Lord has required of them. However, Sarah has a problem. So when she witnesses um, the laughter of Ishmael laughing at this old woman carrying around a baby, remember he's a teenager at this point, uh, once, once she recognizes him laughing at her, she banishes the boy away. Uh, did I put that scripture down there? Did, I, did we have that? Okay, well, let's go back to 21. I, I, I didn't get all of 21, but let's go to Genesis 21. I'll read that. Because that, um, I, I think there's some interesting things that are happening here that's kind of ironic. Uh, Genesis chapter 21. Uh, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. A narrator just re- reminding us that the Lord has fulfilled his promise. Um, And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time which which God had spoken to him. Again, he fulfilled his promise. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Now, a why did, did she say that? Why did she say that? God has made laughter for me. Because she laughed when God said she was going to have a baby. Abraham laughed the previous chapter when God said Sarah was going to have a baby, that it wasn't going to be Ishmael. Um, and then God said, you will name him Isaac, which means he laughs. Literally means he laughs. All right. So a lot of laughing going on so far. Okay. Everyone who hears me, she says this. She says this as she's looking at her child. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. Okay? She confesses. She knows this. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on that day. Uh, Isaac was weaned, but Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, who she had born to Abraham, laughing. Everybody's going to laugh over me, except you, you little pipsqueak. <laughs> Don't you dare laugh at me, <laughs> right? Okay, we know this has happened before in the past. Sarah is not a fan of Hagar. She concocted this plan. She thought this plan was going to be really good and that this was going to solve all their problems. And that the Lord, this was, he, he really was trusting us to solve the problem. And so she decided to seek this out on her own. And it ended up being one of the worst decisions that she ever made. Now, why does she banish Ishmael? 
Look in the text. Why does she banish Ishmael? What's that? What, say it one more time. Yes, rival heir. Does God think he's a rival heir? He doesn't. What was the promise? Yeah. He said first, an heir from your loins will be your heir. So Ishmael was born. No, no, no. This man, he has said on, he's going to say again, on a number of occasions, he will not be your heir. Sarah sends him away because she says, he's not going to, you're right about that, Lord. He's not going to be my heir because I'm going to send him away. But wait a minute. Does she believe God or does she not? Isn't it though? Again, you have the promises of God and they all sound good and they make sense when you hear them. But then when you leave, then something happens and you're faced with a decision of your jealousy. The rubber actually meets the road and you have to go, do I believe this or do I not? And time and time again, we see that Abraham and Sarah do not, which gives me hope. (laughs) It should give us all hope because we know that feeling of jealousy. I've felt that feeling before, not over a rival heir like Sarah, of course, but I've felt that feeling before. So, of course she doesn't. She sends him away, and I've probably missed some blanks, but let me uh, get where I'm at. Oh, yeah. Uh, After God has fulfilled his promise to Sarah, she casts out Ishmael for fear fear that he will be heir with my son Isaac. She she says it in the negative. He will not be heir with my son Isaac. But that's her fear, is that that he's going to be the heir with Isaac in in spite of the fact the Lord has said time and time again, he is not going to be heir. But that's exactly right. He is Abraham's son. So in spite of the fact that Sarah is faithless in this kind of in this scene, this demonstrates yet again that she's having a hard time trusting in the promises of God. In spite of the fact that she remains faithless, God remains faithful. And so his promise to Abraham is that no, Ishmael will not be your heir, but I will bless him independently of your, your, your uh, possessions. You get that? Ishmael, by all accounts, didn't get much from Abraham. I mean, maybe he does, but he, it's totally independent of Abraham's possessions. God blesses him with a nation all his own. Simply why? Because of his connection to Abraham. Because he's your son. So get this. Just let's just think about this for just a second. Abraham sins grievously. Time and time again. Does God like to sin? No, he obviously doesn't. He comes back to him every time and reminds him of the promise. Every single time he comes back to him and reminds him of the promise. It's obvious that he doesn't like it. But yet he continues to bless him. We go back to that scene in chapter 15 where he cuts the animals in half and passes between it. He has staked his name on the blessing of Abraham. And that's, I think, the most important thing that we have to see. God cares more about his name than anything else. He has to. To care about anything else more than his own name would be idolatry. So he cares about his own name. And so he continues to bless Abraham. And here's the best part of it all. He's making Abraham into the person he wants him to be. Which is awesome. And we actually get to see it in the text. We watch a grown man be sanctified. That's, I think, the beauty of this text. Okay, so Abraham and Abimelech. uh, Now we're we're back to chapter 21. Uh, I think it's 21, right? Uh, Abraham and Abimelech come upon the scene again, or Abraham comes back here to Abimelech. And uh, after the birth of Isaac there in verse, I guess it starts in verse 22. 
And they encounter one another, they have an encounter, and it's specifically over the, their relationship together in the land. How are they going to interact with one another? There's some problems. Abimelech has said to him, look, I'm going to, I'm going to bless you with, with everything. And um, there in 21, we'll read it at, the, at that time, in, starting in verse 22, 21, 22. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, uh, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not do... <laughs> that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will, de- you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I swear. So Abimelech just laying everything bare and just kind of saying, look, let's not have an episode like we've had before. We, let's, let's you just do everything right. And so he, he says, okay, I swear. And so in verse 25, when Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I, I do not know who has done this thing. Uh, you did not tell me, and I have not heard, it until, heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two, male, uh, the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for, uh, for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, and because they were uh, th- there, both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord and the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Okay. So here we have this scene around the property dispute, and Abraham here again has a, a property problem, and it's, it's concerning Abimelech, and he brings it to Abimelech, and Abimelech says, hey, look, it's, it's yours. But pay attention to what the author is doing. What is the promise that's made to Abraham? Not just that he'll make him a great nation, he'll give him kids, that he's going to bless those who bless him, he's going to curse those who curse them. There's another part of the promise. What is it? The land. The land's an important part of the promise. And so every time we see Abraham getting in a land dispute, he ends up winning the land dispute. We're going to see it later on. He gets a piece of property as well where he buries his wife. So, I mean, there's (laughs) when it comes to the land, Abraham has what he wants. And the author's showing us Abraham had free reign of the territory of the land of the Philistines. Now, if you read your Bible, you know the land of the Philistines is no-go country, right? You don't go into the land of the Philistines. That's where you fight, okay? So, and by the way, today, you still don't go there, all right? You go through the land, you don't go to Gaza. There's not too many people allowed in there. Uh, you probably already know that, right? <laughs> you see it enough on the, on t- you don't go that direction. And so, it, it's, it's no-go country, all right? Well, here we've got Ab- Abraham, He's had a promise by, from God. Well, he's got free reign of the country. Okay, there is one final test that happens in chapter 22. One final test, and it remains for Abraham in the narrative. God tells him to take his son Isaac and sacrifice him in the land of Moriah. Okay, the land of Moriah. How do we know the land of Moriah? You know where the land of Moriah is? Yeah, you do. You know Mount Moriah? I think you do. What? Lynn, say it louder. Oh. Mount Moriah. It doesn't sound familiar, does it? You go, it kind of has a ring to it, but you're like, I can't place it. I don't know. Okay. Um, Mount Moriah is the place of Solomon's temple. Or maybe it's more precise to say the temple is in the land of Moriah. We have... We don't have enough information to say, yes, on the exact spot Abraham took his son is where the temple is built. We don't have enough information to say exactly that. They go to the land of Moriah, and they go to a mountain in the land of Moriah. 
Okay, we know that from Genesis. And then we also know Solomon built his temple on Mount Moriah. And so we know that David was given land on Mount Moriah to build a, an altar. And he was given a threshing floor from uh, uh, Ornon the Jebusite. I would never have recalled that if I didn't write it down. Uh, Ornon the Jebusite. Uh, you can see that in 2 Samuel 24 and 1 Chronicles 21. He's given the land there to build an altar. And his, you know, his intention is to build a temple, but God won't let him build a temple. Why? He's got too much blood on his hands. Okay, so he, you're too much of a fighting man. Your son's going to have to do it. And so... Uh, uh, Solomon comes along, and Solomon does build the temple on the place um, in where, where David had built the altar. So we know for sure, and we see that in, in 2 Chronicles 3, 1. We might as well read that. Just one verse here. Let's see. Did I put it down? Okay, yeah, I did. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornon the Jebusite. So David got the altar there. He got the threshing floor from Ornon. He put his altar there, and then Solomon came and built a temple on that spot. Was that the exact spot that, uh, that, that Abraham brought Isaac? Well, we don't know exactly. We know that he went, it's at least the area, okay? It's, it's pretty close, okay? Go ahead. Yes. So the reason that the Dome of the Rock is there and the reason that it's a holy site to the Muslims is they consider that the place where Abraham sacrificed Isaac. But I think they actually say he sacrificed him, doesn't they? I think they say he killed him. I, I think so. I, I could be wrong on that. What's that? I think they do. But Abraham is nevertheless a forefather in their religion as well. And Ishmael, they say, was the inheritor of the promise. And so... Um, but they believe that that is the spot where Abraham sacrificed Isaac. Well, I can't necessarily argue with them that that is the spot where Abraham took Isaac, because it very well may be. Uh, but we're, we just don't have quite enough in the text to say conclusively, yes, this is the spot. Yes. Yeah, it eliminates the competition. I mean, basically what Sarah was afraid of. <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, yes. <laughs> there you go. Uh, okay. So now Abraham proves, let me get to the, the text here. Abraham proves that he fears God by trusting that the Lord will fulfill his promise to him in providing a replacement for his son on the altar. And we know that because at the end, the uh, angel of the Lord who calls out from the sky says it in twenty two twelve. He says, um, "He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now, I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me." See, there, there's a uh, God tells him, "Go sacrifice your kid," and. It's once again a test. You can see right there at the beginning of 22, he says, after these things, chapter 22, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, now what are these things? Probably the entire story of Abraham up till now. After all these things have taken place, after Abraham has gotten to this point, God tests him yet again. And so the test is once again, do you trust me? Go sacrifice your son. On, in the land of Moriah. Do you trust me? The fear of the Lord here in 22 is connected to implicit trust in the promises of God. How much do you trust that what the, what the Lord has told you is true? And so Abraham, proving that he trusts the Lord, takes Isaac up on Mount Moriah, well, into the land of Moriah, to sacrifice him up on the mountain. And the Lord says, you've proved to me that you fear me that you have fear of me. Now, this is kind of ironic um, because the last time that we see the phrase of fear of God, it's in the story of Abimelech. Remember what Abraham says? It's very ironic. Abraham says, he says, why have you done this to me? And he says, well, I didn't think there was anybody who feared God in this place. Abraham's the one that's not trusting God. 
Abraham's actually the one that doesn't fear God. On the flip side, Abimelech's the one that's in the bed that goes, oh my goodness, I'll give him back. I'll give her back. I don't want her. So the irony of ironies, the prophet whom God has given this command to is the one that demonstrates lack of fear of God in spite of the fact that he's walking into the land thinking there is nobody in this land that fears God, including him. All right. Um, Am I still on track here with the points? Okay. Uh, Now, Abraham learns to trust the Lord, and it's evident in the pre-sacrifice and post-sacrifice identification of Isaac. Look at how Isaac is identified in chapter 22. We see this. um, Did I put that? Okay, I always doubt myself, but I think I did. Okay, yeah. 22, uh, uh, 22, um, he said... Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. Now, then he refers to him twice. And I have the verses down here, but I didn't get one of them. Verse 12, uh, he says, Do not, this is after the, the attempt, Abraham goes through with it, and he says, Don't lay your hand on the boy. Or do anything to him for now. I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. What's missing? Whom you love. Before he sacrifices, your son, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and sacrifice him. Well, I know that you fear me, for you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Go down to 16. He says, he says again, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. Now, after this scene... Isaac disappears until Abraham's burial. So they walk away from Moriah and... Uh, I shouldn't say until his burial. When they walk away from this, this scene, Isaac isn't mentioned. It's just Abraham. There is a question before the sacrifice. Who do you love? And Abraham taking his son, binding him, and being willing to go through the sacrifice proves that it's God he loves. It's God he fears. It's God he trusts. And he knows that somehow God's going to do something. He tells his men, we'll be back. He's confident. Something is going to happen. And I think it's evident in the text. There's been so much that has been said about chapter 22 about what happens to Isaac. Why doesn't Isaac mention coming back with him? Because the concern is Abraham. Do you love me? Do you fear me? Do you trust me? See, all three of those are connected. Our faith in God is connected to our love of God, which is connected to our trust in God, which is all about a fear of God. Questions? Ishmael and Esau. Ishmael is the father of 12 tribes that are, I couldn't begin to name them right now, but essentially the Islamites claim Ishmael as their father. The Islamites, the Islam, nation of Islam. Esau is Jacob's brother, and will be the Edomites, will be his, his clansmen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Esau is an interesting cat. His parents don't like Canaanite women, and so he goes, I'm going to marry a couple. <laughs> <laughs> he is a spiteful young lad. <laughs> yeah. Um, well... I don't know off the top of my head. I, they claim Ishmael as their father. They would claim Ishmael as their father, I think. But I'm not sure if they claim him by the, as their father of, by faith or by progeny, by ge- genetics. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure on that. So. Is all that still good elf, right? 
Yeah. Uh, we're in this Sunday, um, we'll be going into, um, Jesus walking into the land of Gadara and casting out the demons from the man and the people run, kind of getting rid of him. And I, I hope what I'm able to show you in the text is Jesus incredible mercy. And it's, I'm, I'm still, as I'm, as I'm studying and kind of writing and things like that, I'm still very much blown away just at the incredible mercy. And I hope, I hope I'm able to show that to you on Sunday. But um, yes, showing mercy to, to even demons, I think, is there in the text, which is phenomenal. So, any other questions? All right, let's pray, and then get out of here. Heavenly Father, uh, we are, we can help but be impressed and um, convicted by your mercy, your grace, steadfast love to Abraham. And we know that by faith, we are children of Abraham. That all who are in Christ are children of Abraham. And we know that your blessing comes to us by virtue of your son. And that through him all the nations of the earth are blessed. Lord, may we be ambassadors of your grace and your mercy and your love, both in our actions, being merciful, being gracious, being loving to people around us, as Christ was merciful to us. But may we also impart to them the message of grace and mercy and love in the gospel. May other people around us be blessed through Christ because of our testimony. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.